You're listening to the Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording in Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Catherine Putz, coming to you also from Washington, D.C. Happy New Year, Katie. Good to be back. Yes, welcome to 2024. Absolutely. Uh, sorry to listeners that it took a little bit uh, for us to get the first episode out this year, but um, we're, we're definitely back and there's a lot to talk about. Uh, certainly hasn't been a slow start to the new year. Uh, but today, uh, Katie and I thought we would take stock of um, the elections in Taiwan, uh, which uh, no surprise going into this new year. Um, I think many analysts agreed that this would be one of the main um, geopolitical bellwethers in many ways for um, security in the uh, Indo-Pacific region, uh, more specifically uh, in the Taiwan Strait. And I have to say, um, I'm not particularly surprised by the outcome. Uh, the Taiwanese people voted for uh, continuity. Um, and while that is the case, uh, I do also want to sort of point out that, you know, this election also gives China, I think, some reason for not calm. Uh, but I do think at least in the short term, if you are China, all is not lost, uh, so to speak, with this election. Um, most importantly, I think, while all of the headlines have pointed out that the Taiwanese people voted for continuity, uh, you do have a split legislature, which I think is quite important for how Beijing will interpret the results of this election. Uh, and most importantly, while um, former vice president or current vice president Lai Ching-te, uh, William Lai, uh, was elected president along with B. Kim Shao, who's the former Taiwanese ambassador to the United States, um, that does not mean that China, again, won't interpret the results, I think, slightly differently, because um, the margin of victory here was the smallest for any candidate since 2000. Uh, and so the KMT uh, and the TPP uh, did show that there are alternatives, uh, not that either side is about to uh, take over uh, in, in Taiwanese politics. But that, I think, is sort of the big picture here. Um, Katie, is that sort of your takeaway here? Uh, what are what are some of the other observations that you think are important for our listeners from this election? So for, for this election, I, I mean, I think it's good that you pointed out that, you know, while the uh, DPP has retained the presidency, um, Lai came in with around 40 percent of the vote. Uh, so a plurality, but not a majority. The KMT candidate uh came in around 33%. Uh, and then the Taiwan People's Party, the TPP's candidate, which is a newer party, uh, came in around 26%. So you have a really, it wasn't a landslide. I, I do think sort of headlines saying that, that it, you know, the Taiwanese people voted for continuity are, are accurate. But it is important also to note the change in the, the legislature uh, balance, you know, the legislative one, the you know the Kuomintang is is up. Um, they have the most number of seats, but nobody has an absolute majority. Uh, they the KMT came out with fifty two seats. The DPP is is down about ten seats to fifty one, and then the TPP sort of rounds out the rest. And that kind of really positions the TPP as a a bit of a fulcrum. Um, you know, before the election, uh, there was a lot of drama uh, around whether the KMT and the TPP would put together a, a, a joint uh, ticket that fell apart very dramatically in a televised debate. I, I encourage listeners to go read articles about it because it was one of the more absurd political events of last year. Um, but that that really sort of illustrated that they're not exactly on the same page. And so the KMT can't rely on the TPP to always sort of vote with them and stand by them. 
Um, and that that really hands a lot of power to the TPP. So that's that's sort of an area to watch. Uh, and then, you know, and, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but sort of the immediate aftermath of the election sort of yielded some pretty interesting things. Uh, primary among them um, is the uh, diplomatic switch for the tiny Pacific island nation of Nauru, uh, which changed its allegiance from or it's changed its diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to China the day after the election. Uh, and then you sort of you kind of hinted at this. The Chinese reaction to the election has been muted. Um, there are some sort of high points. Uh, there was a, was a very critical Chinese statement uh, directed towards Australia for congratulating uh, Lai for for the election, uh, which is sort of part of that that Pacific politics angle of this. But but I think you know this did go largely as people expected in the po in the polls ahead of the election. Uh, Lai was doing pretty well. Uh, there's a a blackout of polling in the I think it's ten days before the election in Taiwan. So there's sort of numerous events that happened in the week that led up to to uh, the election that that could have impacted people's choices. But but by and large, we we saw a result that was expected, um, but does sort of point at some of these fault lines in Taiwanese politics and Taiwanese domestic politics, and then how those sort of uh, play out for the international space. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I want to come back to the Nauru thing in a second. Um, but I think, you know, just for just for a second, I think it's worth dwelling on this question of the Chinese response, because the big geopolitical mm -hmm. question with the trend lines in Taiwanese domestic politics, right? The fact that for years and years, we've been seeing more Taiwanese identify as Taiwanese first, not Chinese, the the Taiwanization trend, um, the continuity angle here that we've both emphasized, I think is important. But I think from the vantage point of, you know, thinking through what does this election tell us about the probability of conflict over over mm -hmm. Taiwan, right? Uh, Xi Jinping keeps saying that it's a historical inevitability that, that Taiwan and China will be united, and, and people interpret that as sort of an imminent call to war, but I don't think that's entirely right. I think for Xi, if you look at this election, right, the Xi Jinping, I don't think, has a short-term necessity to unify with Taiwan, but what he does need uh, is to prevent the idea, or at least sustain this idea, that Taiwan is not being lost for China, uh, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's an important kind of distinction. And I think this, this election is actually good news for that narrative uh, in uh, in China, that Taiwan is not being lost, that yes, there is continuity, the DPP won again uh, in the presidency, but all of the factors I think you highlighted uh, about the performance of the KMT, the split legislature, I think that does kind of give China enough of a reason to, for its purposes, maintaining the status quo as well. Uh, and so I don't think this election is going to be the, the proximal spark to a new Taiwan Strait crisis. Uh, you know, I think we have much more credible evidence that um, the kinds of events that will draw Chinese overreactions are going to be potentially motivated by the United States, as we saw with Nancy Pelosi's visit in mm -hmm. August 2020. Uh, and apart from that, I think the internal dynamics in China, you know, the concerns about corruption in the PLA that have been widely reported in the last six to eight months, the uh, concerns about China's economy, uh, none of that, in my view, sort of, if you ask me to kind of project geopolitically what the consequences of this election are likely to be for security in the Taiwan Strait. I don't think this is really going to give China enough of a reason to uh, fundamentally rock the boat. I don't know if you uh, yeah. share that view. No, I, I would agree. And I think if you look at sort of Lai's uh, sort of speech after winning the election, uh, it was pretty moderate. I mean, the the Beijing has sort of always painted him as this 
pro-independence uh, firebrand, uh, and and there there are sort of sparks of that in in his political past. But I think as vice president and certainly as a presidential candidate, Lai really sort of honed that into a more narrow status quo. Uh, because you know, if if you talk to some some Taiwanese sort of politicos. Um, the 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 joke that will come up is we don't have to declare independence. We are, we already behave like we're independent. Uh, so it's sort of like we're past that discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't I don't know that Beijing likes that, but but I, I think you're right that this is not a blowout um, rejection of 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 China necessarily. Um, but it is it is sort of an adherence to the status quo, and that status quo is sort of Taiwan with de facto independence, China with these great big claims, um, and sort of. Us, the rest of us kind of puttering along on the sides. Um, I do. I do think you're also right that you know the big reactions, at least in the last few years, we've seen from China regarding Taiwan have have more to do with what the United States has done regarding Taiwan. And so I think that's that's a critical sort of third factor to pay attention to. Yeah. All right. So let's let's uh, change gears and talk a bit about the Nauru decision, right? So this is part of a broader trend line: uh, Taiwan and China. Under the KMT, under Zhou, had a diplomatic truce where neither would try to pluck diplomatic allies from the other side, which ended with uh, the initial election of Tsai Ing-wen in January 2016. Uh, and since then, uh, one third of the diplomatic allies, so-called diplomatic allies, that's a term that Taiwan uses to describe the countries that recognize Taiwan, are not actually allies in the way that Americans at least think of that term, but mm-hmm. uh, one third of the countries that recognize China, um, sorry, Taiwan in uh, January 2016 have now switched uh, to Beijing. Nauru is the latest, leaving just 12 countries uh, for for um, uh, for uh, Taiwan. And there's, I think, a lot to be said here about. Um, I mean, first of all, I don't think this is entirely going to come as a surprise. Although it is, of course, you know, the U.S. has said that it's regrettable. The Taiwanese have known that this is happening. Had to know that this would be a likely reaction to uh, how Taiwanese voters uh, voted in this election. But, you know, I think I've said this on the podcast in the past, Katie, it it strikes me as an interesting choice by China, because if China is concerned by the Taiwanization trend, um, one of the most important, I think, factors that contributes to the identity of Taiwan as the Republic of China is the fact that countries recognize the Republic of China diplomatically, right? And so the more countries go away, like you can imagine a future where maybe there's just two or three countries that recognize the Republic of China because uh, Beijing keeps chipping away at Taiwanese diplomatic allies. Under those conditions, I think the idea of the Repu- of the Republic of China as a political entity vis-a-vis a Taiwan that's more de facto independent, de facto independent as a political entity in its own right, I think starts to become less useful. Uh, and so I th- actually think mm-hmm. there is a, a way in which this does shoot Beijing in the foot a little bit uh, because ultimately this isn't going to delegitimize or cause Taiwanese voters to sort of reassess um, how they view the the island's own sense of self, uh, and so that I think is uh, it is it's something I don't hear a lot, kind of in these conversations. But um, tell us a little bit. You know, you've already alluded to kind of the South Pacific uh, angle geopolitically to all of this. So how do you how do you sort of interpret Nauru's decision in sort of that broader context? Yeah. So uh, you know, I think. I think when we often talk about Taiwan's diplomatic allies and and in China sort of plucking them apart, uh, we talk about China and we talk about Taiwan, but we don't really talk about the politics of the countries that make these decisions and and what leads into that. And I think Nauru is a pretty interesting uh, case study um, because it it is 
I think it has a population of like 13,000. It's a very small country. Mm -hmm. um, and it has a pretty interesting history, a lot of which has to do more with Australia than anybody else. Um, and some of the news that came after Taiwan or after Nauru announced its decision uh, to switch its diplomatic sort of recognition, um, in the Australian press, it was reported that that Nauru's decision was actually more about Australia and the fact that Australia is is doing its its damnedest really to pull out of Nauru. Australia has for a long time spent a lot of money funding a detention center based in Nauru, where uh, immigrants who try to access Australia via boat are not allowed onto the onto the Australian continent. They're shipped to Nauru. Um, last year, they tried to shut down the detention center. It currently has, I think, 12 detainees, more recent arrivals. But it's 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 a political football in Australia and shutting it down is is a bit of a movement. But the result is if they shut it down, Nauru is losing out on a lot of money. And so part of the financial calculus on, on Nauru's uh, side is China has more to offer in terms of just funding and, and support. Now, whether that works out in the long run, uh, I think we've seen several of Taiwan's diplomatic allies have switched. They've switched back. They switch back again. And some of that does have to do with sort of the the development aid and loans and things like that. I, I would I would not lay everything on a, a, a it's not necessarily just money driven these decisions but but it is a it is a big piece of it and the fact that that that's what was being reported in the Australian press I thought was particularly interesting because it sort of adds another dynamic uh, and then what I mentioned earlier was the you know the Aust uh, the Australian government congratulated William Lai on on you know conducting a successful congratulated Taiwan on conducting a successful election and William Lai on will on winning and China uh, sort of summoned some of the ambassador and, and said, you know, there's there's one China, what are you doing? And I think some of that is, it, we'll have to see how that plays into uh, what had been sort of a nascent rapprochement between Australia and China. You know, are they gonna fall apart over Taiwan? We shall see. Um, but, I, but I think there's just, there's a lot of dynamics running through the Pacific that I, I do think sometimes get overlooked. They're not overlooked by everybody, but but they do get a little bit sort of shuffled to the side because these are small countries, but their decisions do have big consequences. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this this is another one of them. So we'll, we'll see. Um, what comes from that. Absolutely. No, that reminds me of the discussion we had uh, when the Solomon Islands uh, switched over, which uh, had a very interesting domestic political context. For listeners that are interested, uh, you can go into the archives and uh, listen to the chat that Katie and I had about that particular uh, case uh, when it comes to China and Taiwan. But uh, Katie, I think we'll uh, leave it there for today. And uh, yeah, Happy New Year again to all of our listeners. Hope 2024 is off to a good start. And uh, Make sure you subscribe to the show so you can keep up with future episodes uh, and do leave us a review uh, wherever you get your podcast. We really do appreciate that. So uh, with that, thanks a lot for listening. And Katie and I will be back soon with more on the Asia Geopolitics podcast.